Welcome to the Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybeal, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Now, here's John. What is today? Um, the 30th? Yeah, 30th. 30th. September 30th. August 30th. I don't know when this will play, but anyway. Well, welcome to the podcast. Today, we are joined with a, for an in-depth interview with Kyle Nato. That's how we pronounce that, right? NATO? Right. Yep. Uh, just like North Atlantic Treaty Organization, unfortunately, I don't have that political uh, power. But how is it spelled? <laughs> it's, it's French, so it's N-A-D-E-A-U. I took four <clears throat> years of French just to learn how to pronounce my own last name. Um, if you want to get very fancy with it. I do want to get fancy. Miss uh, <clears throat> Everett, my French teacher, would be very proud of me because my name is Kyle Nedu. And yeah, you have to say it with a snotty French accent, and, you know, we smoke our cigarettes like this, and um, so it's Ned Dew. And what part of France, how many generations have you been, has your family been here? Oh, we've... Uh, forever? Forever. Uh, so it's been NATO forever? I pronounce it NATO. Right. What do your parents and say? My, actually, my parents pronounce it NATO as well. And my grandmother... Pronounces it... My grandmother clung to the, the Frenchness of it, if you will. Um, okay, so it's, so two generations we've gone to North Atlantic Treaty organization. organization, right? So again, uh, and it's it's funny you'll probably hear this come out in the interview, but um, uh, my Frenchness and uh, I, I have a thing for military history, um, which I'm sure we'll briefly discuss. Very but, nice. Uh, so it all comes full circle with North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Okay, well, Kyle Nadeau, 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 welcome to the Audubon Country Club podcast. You are the title, it's a, you say your own title because there's a lot going on there, right? So, yes, I am the assistant track manager. Um, I wear many hats like most people do here at Audubon. Um, what that means is uh, I'm second in command as far as track operations go under Mike Gritter. Okay, so assistant track operations director. Yeah. Assistant track manager. Assistant track manager. Right. Okay. And, of course, if you listen to the podcast, you're, you come on quite often to fill us in on the events that have happened in the past and the events that are happening in the future. And we will continue that, but today I wanted to talk about you, uh, your background, where you grew up, and how you ended up here at the Audubon on a Thursday afternoon with me in the North Tower on a very nice Thursday Beautiful afternoon. Day. Beautiful day, 75 degrees, a lot nicer than it was this weekend. True. It was a little muggy. Uh, so starting, you know, kicking things off, uh, I was born and raised in McHenry, Illinois, which is uh, very far north. Uh, it's not even a suburb of Chicago. It's more of a suburb of uh, Wisconsin, if anything. How close to the border? 20 minutes. Oh, okay. So Pretty close, yeah. Uh, if, if you ever go skiing at Wilmot Mountain, you probably drive through McHenry, Illinois. But uh, let's see. Uh, jumping right into things. So where are your parents? Were they from up there? or where, where were they? For the most part, right. Uh, my, my father grew up in Northbrook, my mother in Skokie. Uh, they met and they decided to settle down in McHenry, which is a great, great town. Um, you know, uh, my parents were fantastic parents. 
Brothers, Eight. sisters? Uh, I am the youngest, so I like to say that they stopped once they had the best. Uh, <laughs> most, most younger siblings will probably say that, but uh, I have an older sister. Uh, her and her family live out in Colorado now, and my brother uh, is a big fancy lawyer downtown Chicago with his wife. Okay. So. And I know this from another interview, but your dad was a... He's a dental technician. Uh, so essentially, if you go to the dentist and you need either a crown, bridge, dentures, uh, my father is, um, he's the guy that makes them pretty much. And he still, he had his own company, right? Is that he right? He did. Yep. He had his own company. Uh, he loved uh, the work that he did or that he does. But uh, he hated running his own business, um, just kind of the HR and payroll and all that stuff. He would prefer to kind of sit there and make these, quite honestly, beautiful teeth, uh, some that you would never know that were, were fake teeth. And he's still he's part-time, still at, right? Or is it full-time? Um, he's, he's working full-time. full-time. He loves it. Uh, he's the kind of guy that needs to be working. Um, I'm pretty sure that once he stops... We, we have to find him another hobby. That's why we were talking about the Model A and oh, Model T, you know, something that. Yeah. Yep. So my mother, um, I am my father's son. We have the same quirky sense of humor. Uh, we both enjoy the pretty much the same things. My mother, on the other hand, uh, she is a nurse um, and is terrified of, you know, me driving fast cars and uh, <laughs> motorcycles and stuff like that. So, um, which we'll talk about later, but, um, both of them, again, they were fantastic parents and, uh, I had a great childhood growing up, but, um, so did you do sports and stuff when you were a kid? I played hockey, uh, primarily and, uh, chase girls primarily as well. Which, Did you letter in, in that, the second, the hockey or the degree? Uh, <laughs> so my mother hated hockey uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, and then my father, his main concern was uh, hockey players lose a lot of teeth. So growing up, <laughs> right. I had the best mouth guards known to man. And also he told me, you know, that he didn't want to be making uh, me any fake teeth or anything like that. Because if you YouTube looking for the, I wasn't stalking you, but looking for the Autobahn because you run the, we'll get to that in a second, the mm-hmm. Audubon YouTube stuff. If you Google your name or YouTube your name, or Kyle Nato comes up as scoring like 100 points in a basketball game in like North, you know, Right, no, yeah, that definitely wasn't me. Are you familiar with this uh, video? I, uh, yes, I am. <laughs> um, every once in a while, I'll Like 100 myself. points in a basketball game. And he's like from, he's like from North, a northern yeah. sub, suburb yeah. or something. Uh, the same name. Don't know him. Heck of a basketball right. shot, right? Yeah. Three points after three points. So Interesting. So uh, high, then... Uh, when, when did you... So I graduated from high school. Um, 16. And oh, let's go back to 16. You're trying to rush my, my oh, interview okay. here. So, oh, so yeah. your first car at 16, what was the story? What was there? What was going on? Or uh, My first car was the ultimate guy, uh, guy car. Uh, it was a 1973 Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> Okay. 1973. 1973. That was a super beetle. Uh, it Ooh, had, yeah, it had the largest engine, I guess, that they produced at the time, which was an 1800 cc motor. Uh, 1800 cc's of raw fury, as I'd like to tell people. Um, I paid $1,700 for the car, which was about $1,600 too much for it because um, it was it was a big piece of junk. But um, I knew right around the age of 12 that I wanted 
my own car and that I wanted a Volkswagen Beetle. So okay. actually at the age of 12, I got my first job. Um, and In preparations uh, for purchasing the for Beetle. For purchasing the Beetle, yep. Uh, so I, I managed to save uh, some money with, with my little job that I had on Saturday mornings. Um, and I, again, I paid $1,700 for the car. My parents helped me, but I had to pay them back. And um, you're a car of the people, right? Car right, exactly. Yeah, car of the people. Um, good German engineering. Uh, although by that time, what was it, like 27 years later, almost 30 years later when I bought the car, um, uh, you learn to appreciate fancy new gizmos in cars nowadays <laughs> because this car had um, the synchros were worn out, so I didn't have reverse. Uh, so I had to park on a hill or convince one of my high school buddies to push me out of the parking spot that I parked in. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had to park hey, on a hill. Can we park there? No, no, no. no, we no, can't. no. It's too flat. Right. You had to it's drive around, around or you know, around pull the block through. One more time. Um, and then. Uh, it also, the big concern was it had no heat. Um, I, so. I do vaguely remember as a kid being in some of these cars. They never had any heat in the 70s either, as I remember. Yeah. So, um, so uh, my girlfriend at the time, she uh, finally broke down in the middle of winter, and she would put a sleeping bag in the passenger seat. So whenever she got in, she would climb into the sleeping bag, <laughs> and we would drive. And uh, with no heat meant that there were no defrosters as well. So uh, driving to school on cold you know, mornings, I pretty much had to drive with my head out of the window to, to see where I was going. So uh, it was a very interesting car. We, uh, my father and I kind of tinkered around with it, but um, it, it always ran, always got me where I needed to go. And um, you know, I thought I was a really cool kid uh, with this all black Volkswagen Beetle and uh, can't believe I'd, I'm admitting this, but we all do stupid things in high school. I took the speakers because um, the speakers that came with it didn't work properly, so we hooked up. But it did have a radio. It, it was pretty fancy. Uh, yeah, we, we swapped it out from the original 8-track player that was in it. I'm sure that radio was worth more than the car. But um, uh, we put house speakers in the back <laughs> seat, and I would uh, roll down both windows and aim them out of the windows, and I would blast Ride of the Valkyries uh, whenever I was driving around that car, and I thought I was the coolest kid in the world, you know, and of course. He um, might have been the coolest kid in the world. That's, that's a pretty good story. So, wait, so. I pulled up I, at my mechanic's place in this little town I live in down by Bloomington, Illinois. This car, an old Beetle pulled up, and, well, I'll jump back to my Beetle story. I was in the L.A., I was at the L.A. Auto Show, and uh, Tanner Faust's rally car, which is a Beetle, was there. Oh, I didn't know he was driving a Beetle now. Yeah. The, oh. Well, at least a couple years okay. ago, he was yeah. driving, the, driving the Beetle. And I was talking to him. They were telling me it was 600-some horsepower and all this stuff. And I walked to the back to see the motor. And the guy politely informed me that the motor is no longer in the back, and it hasn't been since the Beetle was redone in 2000 or something, right? That's right, yeah. I didn't know that. So here it is, yeah. 17 years later or something. I don't know what it is, 15 years later, that I find out that the Beatles engine is now in the front. I didn't, because I didn't know. And so I'm at my mechanic's place, and here comes an old Beetle, original Beetle pulls up, and guy wanted to oil check. So we watched the young mechanic go out and open up the hood of the only. See, he knew the <laughs> motors were in the front on a Beetle. So he looked yeah. at it, and he stared in complete, utter amazement at 
we couldn't find out, couldn't figure out where the motor might be on this card as he was checking. Then he thought it was a joke. And we and I was no, of course it's in the back. Why would it not yeah. be in the back? <laughs> uh, and actually, that that beetle was was great. Um, How long did you have it? I had it for about a year. Uh, and that poor car, because when you're 16, and you know, uh, of course, I thought I was going to be the next Formula One driver. Um, Makes sense. That was good. Yeah, you know, I go from a Volkswagen Beetle to you know a Formula One car. So I kind of drove it like a 16 year old kid. The good, the great thing was is that um, you know, obviously, the car had no power whatsoever, so I really couldn't get in too much trouble. But uh, I did get pulled over one time, and to my dismay, the police officer as he was walking up to the window, was laughing, and to which he informed me that he's never seen a Volkswagen Beetle break the speed limit. Um, so uh, I just kind of sat there, got laughed at for a little bit, and then he told me to, you know, uh, to drive off without, without a ticket, which was nice. But uh, <laughs> The so. fastest, you got the fastest Beetle the police officer's ever seen. That's impressive. Yeah. Uh, you know, we always joke that it didn't have a speedometer. It just had a calendar, um, you know, uh, zero to 60 by next Tuesday, you know, sort of thing. So, but, um, at this time I was getting, uh, very big into drifting, which back then, uh, drifting was mid nineties, right? Early nineties. Um, late nineties. Late nineties. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, drifting wasn't even heard of. Um, but I had stumbled across an old VHS tape, um, and I, you know, late at night I would watch. Um, so okay, let's just stop. Oh. Let me let me identify drift. Drifting is oversteer, controlled oversteer. Right. So you are controlling your fishtail, for lack of a better word. Exactly. What we what, when it would snow, we would stop off at the grade school to do donuts, and I guess we were we called them donuts back then, but I guess right. we would say we'd stopped off to drift in the snow. No, and that's that sort of stuff I consider just doing donuts okay. as well. And uh, actually, my father is part to blame because uh, when I had my uh, learner's permit, that's exactly what we did. Is he took me into a large parking lot, and unbeknownst to me, I was driving. He said, all right, drive down there. And then he pulled the emergency brake on me, and the car started to fishtail and all that stuff. We spun out, came to a stop, and he said, okay, that's what happens when the car loses control now let's work on controlling it. And so, because at the time, you know, I was scared. All of a sudden the car lost control. I don't know what to do. Um, so we spent probably about a good solid hour just sliding the car around, learning what happens uh, when the rear end breaks loose, how to control it. And he created a monster because, again, that's when I got into, uh, into drifting. Um, and uh, so, again, being a hotshot 16-year-old, uh, I was... After that point, I was trying to drift every single corner, which, uh, kids, if you're listening, I don't recommend drifting on public roads. So, um, <laughs> But uh, <clears throat> I was watching late-night rallies as well, and I consider rally racers, uh, rally drivers, some of the best drivers in the world because in rally, you drive over multiple surface conditions, you know, gravel, snow, ice, tarmac, doesn't matter. Um, and so I would watch these videos and they'd be essentially drifting through the corner. And then that's when, uh, I learned about drifting. I wanted to do it more. Volkswagen Beetle's probably not the best car to, to learn in, but, uh, again, it's what I had. So that's what I started doing. So, and how did you, so, you, so you're driving, <laughs> unfortunately we're drifting on the street now, we're, we're right. So what, 
when did you get a drift car? Because you did have a really right. nice So, uh, yeah, so that came later. Um, I got rid of the Volkswagen Beetle when it was uh, deemed unsafe by the state of Illinois. Uh, How dare it's the it was the fastest Volkswagen Beetle in the and state. Played and rival oh. Valkyries wherever we went. Uh, I was the coolest kid on campus, uh, at least so I thought. But um, it was deemed unsafe by the state of Illinois after it went in for an inspection. So I ended up uh, purchasing a Jeep Wrangler, um, and I traded the Volkswagen Beetle for a. Uh, a set of speakers for the Jeep. Um, the guy turned it into a doom buggy, so I like to think that it had a good home. It's still, and living, it's still living somewhere. It's still, yeah. yeah. But um, Jeep Wrangler, again, not the best drift car. Um, I can see that, yeah. And uh, this is an old, I had a 95 Jeep Wrangler, so. Um, That's like a, is that like a CJ? Uh, it was a YJ. YJ. So it had the square headlights. But um, uh, I drove that in high school, and again, uh, I really don't no recommend heat again. this. No heat, right? Uh, it soft had top. a little bit. It was a soft top, yeah. but um, I was a was not the smartest kid and would continue my drifting in a Jeep Wrangler, which again I don't uh, recommend because of the high center of gravity. Uh, but in my feeble mind, I thought, well, it's got at least a roll bar now, so I'm safe uh, if this Jeep Wrangler does roll over. So, but. Um, yeah, so I drove that thing all throughout high school, but um, I wanted a, a tough vehicle like a Jeep Wrangler because uh, I'd always plan. We're going to kind of change subject here, but I'd always plan to go into the military. So hmm. um, I was accepted into the Citadel, which is a military yeah. college in South Carolina. Yeah. Uh, it's a very prestigious school, and I was uh, fortunate. Very, that's to, pretty impressive. Um, so, what did you want to do in the military? Uh, so when you graduate, you become a second lieutenant, mm-hmm. and you get to choose your branch. Mm-hmm. Um, so interesting thing. So there's a few schools where you go that's a public slash private school that when you graduate, you can become – you're a commissioned officer. Correct. Then you choose where you go. Uh, it would be there. Uh, the, Virginia, the five academies. Yeah, Virginia the, Military Institute. Yep. A, uh, Texas A&M. I don't know about Texas. But I know, uh, because it's funny you mentioned VMI, uh, Virginia Military Institute. Um, All throughout high school, I was debating between the two. Uh, I chose the Citadel after uh, I attended their orientation, fell in love with the campus. Um, I've always been uh, a big military guy. Um, I actually wanted to uh, study military history and uh, afterwards attend the War College. As well, so a completely different path. Wow! wow. Um, the reason things changed is um, about two months before I was supposed to attend the Citadel, uh, I was out with a buddy, and he had a zip line in this forest preserve that he's had his entire life. And sure enough, the one time I go on the zip line, it gets stuck, and uh, I was hanging about thirty-five. Eh, 30, 35 feet off the ground um, and uh, hanging there for a while. There was no safety net because the kid built it in his backyard, basically. Um, So eventually I uh, let go, hit the ground, and I broke two vertebrae in my lower back. Um, 
we didn't know, like, you know, you quickly assess the situation, you, you know, okay, my ankles aren't broken, my legs aren't broken, my back hurts uh, a lot, but for the most part, I'm okay. So after a while, I got up, we walked half a mile to a mile back to our cars, and again, I had a Jeep Wrangler, and those are not the smoothest riding vehicles. So I drove myself home, and then um, about four hours later, I drove myself to the hospital, and that's where I found out I broke two vertebrae. Um, and uh, so I, I'm like, okay. Uh, unfortunately, about a few weeks later, what do you do for broken vertebrae? Nothing, right? Nothing. You stay uh, I should have taken some. I should have done like physical therapy and stuff like that, um, but. Again, you're, you know, it's not nose punk at, you know, 17, 18 years old, so I don't need any of that, um, which I, <laughs> I definitely regret. But uh, um, a few weeks later, I received a letter in the mail from the Citadel, and I'm thinking it's, you know, okay, where am I staying, you know, all that stuff. And uh, um, I'm a medical liability to uh, the Citadel, so I was dropped from the Citadel. Oh. Um, so I... Uh, uh, is that a full scholarship? If, if you get in, it's like a full scholarship? Like a, no, no, it's, it's a you, private school. So, so it's, yeah, you had to pay, which my parents were, they were very supportive, but I'm pretty sure in the back of their mind they were a little excited <laughs> because it's an out-of-state military <laughs> school, uh, and it, it was a very expensive school to attend. But um, So uh, I knew my guidance counselor, so I called her up, and the running theme of this interview, it, sh- it should be cars and girls that's that's how kyle's world uh that's what it revolves around because i called up my guidance counselor and i told her what happened and i was like i need to go to college i need a college uh what would you recommend and she told me to go to illinois state university right in illinois and i said why should i go there and she goes kyle it's a teaching school and there are five girls to every one guy that's all I knew about Illinois State, and two months later, I was attending, you know, the first day of classes at Illinois State. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, I, I guess f- I didn't know. Did I know that? I guess I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, right? it's a big teaching school. Now they're business school. <clears throat> well, no, I mean, I, I actually graduated from Illinois State. I knew that part oh. of it. I just didn't know that you went there. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and so my wife graduated from there also. So. Oh, really? Yeah. But, uh, so, I went to Illinois State uh, originally. They, believe it or not, have a military history program. Uh, I stayed in that for about a semester when then I realized, whoa, what was I Were you doing do? R- RTC or did you think about RTC? Uh, I did until they found out about my back and then they asked me not to come back. So, oh, man. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I switched from military history over to business. And so I graduated Illinois State with a degree in entrepreneurship and small business. Oh, what year did you graduate? Uh, I graduated in 06. So. Okay. All right. Um, Where did you stay? Where did you live when you were there? Tri-Towers. Tri-Towers, yeah. yeah. And then, um, you know, we, our junior and senior year, we lived off campus. And uh, What was your favorite uh, bar you hung out at? Uh, well, using my entrepreneurial skills, uh, we threw a lot of parties. Um <laughs> You know, our bouncers were not the greatest. They didn't check IDs uh, as well as they should have. But um, uh, so the last house we lived in was three doors down from the pub, too. So that was the normal hamburger and cheese balls, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, There you go. Yeah. 
So three dollar pitchers as well. Yeah. So, but um, yeah. So Illinois State was great. Loved it. Um, and actually, their business school. Uh, yeah, I, good, I was yeah. there when they were they really building new, up. They have a brand new building now, State Farm built for them. It's right. absolutely gorgeous. I don't know if that building was ever there when you were there. I mean, uh, actually, we were the first class. Stunning. I think my junior year to actually use that building. Yeah, pretty nice. So, <clears throat> But uh, right around graduation, uh, I knew I wanted to work in this industry. Uh, I had gotten really big into cars, um, driving. This is when I bought a... In, in college, I bought a drift car as well. That Where were you drifting? Were you just uh, around town, around, around Bloomington? Uh, yeah, around town. <laughs> Again, drifting was not really known. Um, so I would go to like SCCA autocrosses and get kicked out. Um, I unfortunately was that guy that was getting kicked out of track days as well <laughs> for uh, you know attempting to drift and things like that. Because again, to me, it's it's all about car control. Now the drifting scene is more about you know, what I consider like showboating and stuff like that. There's still a lot of car control involved in it, but um, I'm a little bit more old school when it comes to drifting. I, I will say, you've heard me say this a million times in the podcast, and so I guess I'll say it again in case this is your first time listening, but, you know, my son started driving our drift cars when he was 11. He's 14 now, and his car control is amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's absolutely amazing to, to see him control a car like that i mean it's almost freaks me out because i'm sitting there sitting next to him and thinking oh slow down slow down slow down but he seems to i do agree that it if you want you know come out here to our drifting sessions and and there is a lot your car is going everywhere you know we've we've had members come out to the drifting sessions and um you know they realize wow it's a little bit more difficult than than it looks you know uh to take your car at say 40 miles an hour pitch it sideways and control it all the way through a corner and then link certain corners together there's an incredible amount of skill finesse uh and concentration involved in that so that's that's what i appreciate from drifting and all of that translates into the real world not only driving you know you hit a patch of ice something like that um but also out on track as well so uh for the same reasons but so uh, I love drifting. Uh, the car I had was a uh, old Toyota Corolla GTS. So when was you, that before they had the drift tech? What, what we like to call the drift tax on it, or is yes. So I bought that car actually surprisingly for seventeen hundred dollars uh, for that car. What's it? What would it go for today? Uh, <laughs> I sold it kind of at the peak when. Um, the Fast and the Furious came out with their yeah. drifting movie. I sold the car after doing many drift days and uh, then eventually track days. Uh, I put minimal money into it, but I sold it for $8,000. Wow. And we refer to the drift tax. So there are certain cars that are very desirable for drifters. Right. So the market has, the, the market is very. Um, competitive for those cars and the right. price goes up quite a bit yeah i've looked at some and it's crazy to see a car you know right next to a, the same model type car and i you know and then you'll see this one because it's a drift more appropriate drift car will be thousands of dollars for example car. you can't find a nissan 240 sx which used to be run-of-the-mill no one would really think twice about them but you can't find one a decent one for 
you know, under five grand. And these are 200,000 mile motors, yeah. uh, rusted out chassis, everything like that. And it's because, let's face it, drifting is more of a, a younger sport, but um, these kids, you know, want those cars. But uh, you can do some amazing things. You can put a lot of money into them, and there's some great cars that, you know, come out of it. So, um, where were we? We were, we were just graduated college, and you had just bought your drifting so car. So I had uh, a drift <clears throat> car, and then I also started doing more and more track days. I kind of was fading out of drifting. Uh, so at that time, I also I had a Mitsubishi Evo. Oh, uh, yeah. Which great I, car. I, I really liked that car. Um, uh, my father had a Nissan 300ZX. Which was another great car. They were all of the cars. Did your dad white. and you and you go to, together for the track days? Did you? Yeah, and he was the best crew chief there was. You know, he would always come in and or I'd pull in and he'd be there checking my tires. And, Did he drive you know, also? No, he always told me he had more fun watching me out there. <laughs> so I think he had more fun watching me burn up my tires and brakes. Um, and, you know, but he still got the thrill out of it. And he came um, at that time. Uh, I was spending quite a bit of money um, doing all these track days and um, and going through college, and uh, that's when I made the decision that uh, instead of buying four tires, it's a lot ch- cheaper to buy two tires. So that's when I got into the world of motorcycles. <laughs> okay. And um, yeah, so this is my logic. Uh, so uh, I I bought a. Um, uh, a sport bike, and what I thought would defray some of the costs, uh, you know, by doing motorcycle track days. Um, but I realized that, you know, riding motorcycles on track is just as expensive as uh, as cars. So a little bit more dangerous. Uh, <laughs> little, little, little bit more. Okay. You know, okay. Uh, your your mistakes are amplified on a motorcycle, so you that. learn, you know, to try and minimize as many of them. But uh, you know, it's never a matter of if, it's it's when. And uh, so after a while, I realized that I was not going to be the next MotoGP racer um, as I'm sliding along the, the pavement. On, uh, let's see, I've crashed on North 2 here. Um, I went down in 6 at one point, uh, North 6. So I know this track very, very well. Um <laughs> You know, I, I know all the little pebbles that are out on track. Uh, definitely on North Track. Luckily, not on South. But um, after a while, again, I realized that I'm not the best motorcycle racer, so um, I decided to get back into cars. So uh, that brings me to end of you know my college career, and now I need to find you know a, a, a job basically. Um, my grandmother of all people, she would like to send me mail while I was at college, and she would always cut out little newspaper articles about, you know, the new Corvette that was coming out or something like that. And it it was always very nice to to receive, you know, those care packages from her. Uh, And one day there was a snippet about a country club uh, that's being built in Joliet, Illinois, but instead of a golf course, it's a racetrack. And this instantly you know, caught my attention. And, um, especially because my senior year in our capstone class, 
uh, for business is you have to create a business plan and, you know, some people executed it and some people didn't. But uh, my business plan was to build my own racetrack. Um, and then when I heard about this place being built, I figured, okay, this is a sign. So when I graduated college, I, um, I'm a very tenacious person. And when there's something that I want, uh, I go after it full bore. Uh, so I graduated, I knew I wanted to work here and nothing was going to stop me. So I picked up the phone and I immediately called Mark Basso, uh, got his voicemail, left him a voicemail. President and founder. President and founder of, of the Audubon. Of, of Audubon. <clears throat> and, um, surprisingly, yeah, I, I didn't get him on the phone. And, uh, so I called the next day and, uh, left him another voicemail and called him the next day left him another voicemail and uh i ended up calling him for 39 days in a row <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so finally uh i get a call back was it a different message each time it was it, was, it, was, it, it had the same like, theme you know hey, it's uh, me again it, it, it's yeah Kyle. i know you can hear me right exactly is this thing on uh <laughs> So he, he called me back and set up an interview. And did he? Uh, what, no, okay. So I have to talk to Mark about this. Did he say? I'm sure he doesn't you got my it. you yeah. got my attention at the 38th call. Or well, <laughs> he brought me in for an interview, and um, at the time, Melissa Harrington was she kind of oversaw all the corner workers. So I told him, you know what, I'll do any job here. It doesn't matter. I just want to work at the autobahn. Um, so Mark was in the interview, and I'm sure just because he wanted to see who this kid was that was calling him so often. Um, and uh, I was very gung-ho. I, I wouldn't recommend this strategy to, to most people, but surprisingly it worked. But um, So I met with Melissa Harrington, uh, and Mark turned to me and he said, okay, Kyle, if we offer you a job, Will you please stop calling me? <laughs> uh, so I, I agreed, and uh, at the time, uh, so I started out as a corner worker. Um, Mark also noticed that I lived in McHenry, and so the other question he asked is, he goes, "Are you willing to drive basically two hours to work every day?" And uh, total of four hour commute, you know, two hours here, two hours home just to be a flagger. And I said, absolutely. If that's what it takes for me to get in on the ground floor. Um, so that's what I did. That was, uh, I believe 2006 is when, uh, yeah, right after I graduated, I started working here. Uh, and so I was started out as a flagger, but, uh, I wasn't completely, happy with that in that I wanted to learn every single aspect of running a racetrack. Because again, my overall goal was to maybe one day build my own racetrack. So back in back in college, you said you had to come up with a, a, a paper year. That, right, yeah, a business paper. plan. Business plan. And did you do it on a racetrack? Uh, I, I built my own. Uh, so I had to find you know how much it would cost. You know, so that uh, is what your project was, was a right. racetrack. Okay. So you know I already had that vision to create, you know, Kyle Nato Raceway, or uh, still haven't come up with a great name for it just yet, but I'm getting there. Uh, 
So I, I wanted to learn every aspect of, you know, running a racetrack and the day-to-day. So I was a flagger, uh, you know, I was a corner worker. Uh, I did registration. I did security. I did maintenance. Anything at this place, uh, any job didn't matter. I'd take out the garbage, you know, um, just so I could learn more about the industry. Uh, And I'm very grateful because... I, you know, Mark and some of the other uh, top management guys took notice of that. And as the season ended, uh, they helped me get a job at Miller Motorsports Park, which is located out in Salt Lake City. Now I believe it's Utah Motorsport Campus. Because they were going to be operating in the wintertime, is that? No, I'm pretty sure they just wanted to get rid of me. Uh, <laughs> But, um, yeah, thanks to Tom Bagley and Mark Basso, uh, they put in a really good word for me because, uh, unfortunately, at that time, there wasn't really a growth opportunity for me to move into, and they knew I wanted to rise through the ranks. So uh, they helped me get the job out in Salt Lake. So I moved out there, and uh, I was the clubhouse manager out at uh, Miller, and I took care of all the... Is it similar to this, or is it similar? It's a public racetrack. Um, at that time, we had five major race series come out. Um, so, And then on top of that, you could rent out you know, a track for the Porsche Club and the BMW Club. But my role more was um, the VIP experience. So uh, any, you know... They did have a slight club aspect to it, um, but it was more of a um, like a viewing type club. If you know, you could come out and you had these VIP seats and stuff like that for for these races. Um, but also, I got to meet a lot of you know famous race car drivers and celebrities and things like that because um, when they came out to the track, someone had to take care of them, and that was me. So learn quite a bit about hospitality uh, that way and um, I worked at Miller then uh, I left Miller to come back here uh, in the Chicagoland area and I got hooked up with a gentleman that was trying to build another racetrack in Indiana Uh, unfortunately that was right during the peak of the recession and um it was hard to find investment of you know over two hundred million dollars to yeah. build another racetrack, uh, so that that kind of went belly up, and uh, I actually decided to get out of the industry uh, altogether because you know the way I was looking at it is I'm bouncing around from racetrack to racetrack. It's not very stable. Um, I needed a, a stable job, so I got out of it and. Uh, Believe it or not, uh, I got into the dental field, and um, I was the vice president of marketing and sales for a small dental company, and uh, ended up working there, running that. Uh, we went from a little boutique shop all the way up to, uh, we were the third largest dental uh, company in the Chicagoland area. Wow. So, wow. very proud of that. Uh, the only problem with that is... There was no passion in it for me. It wasn't something that I loved. It was a job. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a career for me. 
And although we were successful and I was, you know, uh, doing well for myself, I realized that I would have woken up at the age of 60 and realized that I didn't do anything that I was truly passionate about. So uh, I walked into the office, put my two weeks notice in, um, cashed everything out, and um, that's when I got a job out in Oregon managing a racetrack out uh, called, uh, the racetrack was called Oregon Raceway Park out in the middle of nowhere, Oregon. And I uh, was, was there for a number of years running that track. And honestly, I love what I do. I love being at a racetrack. Uh, when I wake up, sometimes, you know, at 5 a.m., I'm excited to go to work. And I realized when I worked at that dental lab that I didn't have that same passion. You know, I would just punch the clock, so to speak. Here, I have no problem working on weekends. I have no problem putting in late hours uh, because I truly love what I do. So I uh, worked out in Oregon. That track, uh, unfortunately, since it is located in the middle of nowhere, it was very difficult to, to get groups to drive all the way out there. Is it a like the road course? It was a road course. Um, Central Oregon or something? Yeah, Central Oregon, about three hours outside of Portland. And the fact that... Is in north of Klamath? Or is it busy? Right? Yeah. Um, so actually, if you go from Portland uh, straight east uh, for about three hours, you pretty much run into it. The big problem was is in Portland, <laughs> downtown Portland is Portland International Raceway. So people who live in Portland, why would they drive three hours out of their way? They physically have to drive past Portland International Raceway to get to uh, the track that I, I managed. So uh, it, was a, it was a tough sell for a great racetrack and phenomenal people that were there. But, um, you know, just uh, the writing was kind of on the wall, and that's when I decided let's move back, to, back home to Chicago Called up Mark Basso. Thankfully, I didn't have to call him 39 times. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the rest is sort of uh, history. So, so you came back, and that was a, that was a couple of years ago, right? That's so that about, was, oh, geez, two years ago? Yeah, so I've been 16-ish, yeah. 2016-ish. So, and now I'm the assistant track manager. I uh, oversee, you know, everything that happens. Yeah, so uh, let's talk about that. So. Sure. You run, so you, you run the kart track. I oversee the kart track. So Mario is the kart track ma- uh, manager, <clears throat> but I oversee the kart league racing series. That's it. Okay, yeah, uh, the kart league racing series, the rally, the rally cross series, yep. and uh, the performance fleet. So again, uh, from a kid who grew up in McHenry, Illinois, now I get to drive a, a Ferrari four eight eight every once in a while. Um, that just, again, is why I love my job. <laughs> I don't know too many other jobs that... Uh, so I'm very fortunate. And I don't call myself lucky. I, I actually don't like the term lucky uh, because luck doesn't show how much determination, how much work that has to go into this job. You know, people say, oh, you know, John, you've got all these fancy cars and you're a member at Autobahn. You must be so lucky. You know, um, I'm sure you worked extremely hard uh, to get where you are today. 
And so that's why I always say that I'm fortunate, but I'm also extremely determined uh, to, to get what I want. Yeah, and you do. I mean, I've, I've, you're very, I, I will say, and I've told you this before, that you're uh, a champion for the members. I think that they're, they're uh, really work hard to have a personal relationship with all the members who take care of all the problems. And um, uh, I just commend you on your accessibility, too. I know that's one of the other things. You don't like a text message or a notif- what is it? You don't like a notification on your phone. You don't have any oh, notifications yeah. on your phone. So when you see my wife's phone with a thousand email notifications, it drives you crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, the way I look at it is, again, we're a country club, but uh, the members here, you probably have 10,000 other places you could be. Uh, most are successful people, so they have you know work, they have family life, uh, and yet they choose to come to Autobahn. I want to make sure that when you're here, it's it's a stress-free environment and that you can enjoy being here. So you're basically on vacation. I want you to be happy. I want you to have fun safely, but um, you know, just enjoy yourself here because again, you could be anywhere in the world, but you choose to be at Audubon. I I I, I try to slow down. Today's been a good day, but. but but usually when I come up here, I'm so rushed to get here to get to the, you know, the lapping session and get back to the car track and then get a tires changed and, you know, do an interview. And I, I, I tried it. That's good. I'm going to look at it now. I'm going on vacation for the day when I come up here. Right. Very good. And speaking of cars yes. and the touring fleet, mm-hmm. I think it is pretty amazing that we have that. I do want to talk to some of the, particularly some of the local owners of the dealerships who provide some of the cars, but we do have a brand spanking new Ferrari 488GTB. GTB. Yeah. I got to drive that last Sunday. Pretty amazing V8 twin turbocharger, dual clutch transmission, 665 horse, I believe. 65 horsepower. Um, great car. Uh, we could talk a whole day about the, the, the fleet. Um, I am very interested in a mid-engine car. I, while I like, I thought that was the a vi- the quality of that car is astounding. I'm I mean, a it, huge Ferrari fan. Um, I do remember uh, in in high school, I would read Car and Driver magazines, and uh, I would memorize statistics and everything like that. Uh, and <laughs> I definitely remember a high school teacher of mine, an English teacher, telling me, you know, Kyle, that's useless knowledge. When are you ever going to need to know that? And part of me wants to call up that teacher now and ever listen you, to this, ever listen to this podcast. You know what? Maybe and say, yeah. Hey, I'm the guy that knew how many. I'm the guy that knew how many, how many horsepower, horsepower was you know, in the. Yeah, I mean, uh, so, and the letters after the after the four eighty. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, so I. You know, I'm I'm a big nerd, uh, and that I know about the performance fleet and stuff like that. I can tell you, you know, this car does zero to sixty in this time, and you know, it costs this much, and you know, uh, this is what makes this car so great. Um, so you know what? Yeah, uh, Mr. Varda, if you're listening, uh, I am now using that knowledge <laughs> that you thought was completely useless. Yeah, I did. I drove the. Uh, Lotus Evora 400 on Saturday, so I got to drive almost back to back, which yeah. is probably at the opposite end of you know the Evora 
the Ferraris. If you've got a scalpel and you've got a sledgehammer, um, that's pretty much how those two cars are. Yeah, it Ford. What would it be? Four times, uh, four five times the price, I guess. Four four times the price, I guess, right? Yeah, close. Uh, um, the Avor is about a hundred thousand, and um, the Ferrari's just over, over three. Over three, yeah. So, um, and I really liked the Evora. I thought it was the, you can tell the materials, the quality is not the same. I mean, I think that's yeah. a big difference, 200,000 some dollars difference. It's a big difference, but um, I thought it was very sporty. I thought the, I think the Evora is very sporty. It feels like a Ford sports car. You and not that, that the Ferrari didn't, right. but Ferrari's, it, it, I don't know. That's just me. Uh, you're buying the Lotus because it's a great handling car. I that's thought, what, that's what you're purchasing. Yeah. Um, I thought it was, I think it looks great. Yeah. You don't see too many no. of them. No. Um, you know, which is a plus and a minus because some people will come up to you and be like, what the hell is that thing? Um, <laughs> you know, but... Uh, I did talk to... Uh, through a friend mentioned, another member mentioned, that uh, a guy said... He goes, yeah, I used to have a Ferrari 48. He goes, I got, I got sick of every teenage kid racing up to me to take a picture, so I bought a Porsche and no one bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, I mean, you buy those cars because they are flashy, they're exotic. Uh, and you know, some people buy them for the performance. Some people buy them for the image. I, I so my wife drives most of the time. She drives a, a Maserati Gran Turismo, and she doesn't like anyone else to have a Gran Turismo. She doesn't like anyone else around her with even a Maserati, let alone a Gran Turismo. But she likes people taking her pictures. You know, a sixteen-year-old kid will come up to her, or something with his mom. The other day, she was shopping and. He knew all about the car. And she said, well, yeah, sit in it. Take a picture. And you know, he wouldn't get in it and sit in it. He goes, no, your mom's right here. I'm right here to take a picture. You know? yeah. But to me, I don't like that attention. I, I, have, I don't like, you know, here I want a, a Evora 400, but I don't want the attention of people taking pictures of it. Well, a great thing about Autobahn is that you never know what's going to come through the gate uh, in the morning. You know, uh, race cars, um, you know, street cars, motorcycles. There's always something different here. Um, and I used to be the same way. I, um, I wanted a car for its ability out on track. Now, you know, getting a little bit older, I do like the, the flashiness of it. I, you know, I like attention. Uh, and, uh, you know, driving around in a Ferrari and stuff like that, you're certainly going to gain um, some notoriety or some attraction. But what I will say is it's great that your wife uh, offered, you know, a 16-year-old kid to, to sit in a car. Because when I was 16, I distinctly remember someone offering me a ride in a car. And this is back in the day where you could just get into a car with a complete stranger and it was okay. Right. Um, my father actually kind of, you know, said, oh, yeah, please take him for a ride. Maybe he was just trying to get rid of me. I don't know. But... Um, uh, you know, I, I feel like if you own one of those cars, it's almost, and again, it's your car, you get to do whatever you want with it, but I think it should be your responsibility to um, at least let someone take a picture, let someone sit in it, if you have the time, obviously, um, because you're cultivating the next automotive. No, that's a good, good question. We don't know what this 16-year-old young man might do. Maybe he might go to ISU and study business and then go run a racetrack someday. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and that could have been the catalyst for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I do know, you know, to, to come out here, if someone's listening to this and they're not a member to come out here, it is it's such a car 
haven. I mean, you just don't know what you're going to see. It's going to be a Ferrari, a Lamborghini. You know, both track days on Saturday, there was two Lamborghinis out there running around. That's something we don't, that is yeah. something we don't see very often. That is probably the, I'd say we'd see, that's probably the least supercar-ish thing that we see. Yeah. Uh, I would guess maybe. Um, a lot of supercars are parked in the parking lot and then they get out and they either run their radical they run their right. They don't take the they don't take yeah. the supercar out on the. Track. I was that was touring sessions I was referring yeah. to in the Lamborghini, not an actual open track session. Um, interesting. Well, well, Kyle, thank you so much for being here on this fantastic afternoon. I know it's been a, something that I wanted to do for quite a while, and I learned a lot about <laughs> you. I thought I knew a lot about you, but yeah. you were full of surprises. Yeah. So, let's see. Quickly, last week we had the rally race. Uh, uh, yes, yes. We, yeah, we had yeah, the rally. We had uh, the rally race last last week. That was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see was there, there was two. Um, there was a double header. Double header for, for the Miatas for Spec Miatas, and then uh, GT race. That's right, GT race on on Saturday, mm-hmm. and coming up. So there's, there's, this, this weekend, uh, for Labor Day weekend, depending on when this uh, podcast goes out, Labor Day weekend, it's always a sport bike weekend. So, again, as a guy who Oh, yeah, so this will come out bike, after Labor Day weekend. Oh, so, okay. so, yeah. so right, We can cut that part out. But. So, coming up, that, that, that is the cart, cart race, one of the cart races? Uh, Saturday, September 8th, is a cart league race. Oh, that's Saturday. Yes. Not Sunday. Saturday. Ooh, I need new bearings in my kid's cart. Yeah. We better get... Oh, we got to talk to Mario. We got to get going on that, yeah. Uh, Sunday, September 9th is a Spec Miata and a GT race on the North Track. Uh, going all the way to the following Saturday, September 15th, another Spec Miata and Wings and Things race. So uh, the calendar is definitely, you know, filling up towards the end of the season. What's the story on the, the the driver development? What is the story on those vehicles? There, there's two huge semis out here with Formula Mazdas. Maybe? Uh, they're uh, Pro Mazdas. Formula Four cars. Um, Formula so, Four. Oh yeah, Formula Four cars. Yeah, I see it on the side. Uh, Jay Howard is this specific group that's out here today. Uh, it's again driver development. So most of these drivers are anywhere between the ages of 13. And I'd say about 18. Uh, and these are the next stars of racing. They, so, so are they, so you just sign, like sign, I sign my school. kid, yeah. I like sign my kid up. Hey, come out for this driver development day here. Yeah, I believe so. You know, and so there, they have what's called a testing membership. So race teams can have, uh, this, this testing membership where I believe you get six days a year. To come out and um, basically, you know, you get to be like a member as well. So you don't have to be any. I, I need to fi- follow up on that, I guess. But you just, I can sign my, I can sign my I kid up, right? So never so, driven yeah. a Formula car before, just Miata and put him from a Miata into a Formula, <laughs> Formula it's quite Four a, car. Quite a big jump, but you know, <laughs> he, he does have experience in in karting and also, you know, now Miata. Yeah. So that uh, it's the next step for him. I'm sure he would love that. Yeah. I gotta check his grades when I get home. There you go. <laughs> so, somebody would like to get a hold of you, Kyle. How do they? How do they do that? Best way is uh, through email, probably, and that's just uh, Kyle Nato. We we uh, spell it again. That. Yeah, N A D E A U, 
at autobahncc.com. Is it Kyle.nato? Nope. Just, just Kyle, Kyle Nato at autobahncc.com. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being on the podcast again. Look Thank forward you. to getting our weekly update with you next time. Definitely. You've been listening to Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybill, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Join us next time for Autobahn Country Club Podcast.